Hello, and welcome to the Dolby Institute podcast. This is a show about how artists use technology to tell their stories, and I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Well, we're coming to you from Austin, Texas this week. We're here for South by Southwest at Dolby House. We have a great activation here all week long at South by Southwest, where we're showcasing some Dolby innovations and technology, not only in cinema and television, but also in music, gaming, automotive, and our web development platform, Dolby IO. Up here on our second floor creator space, we're hosting a lot of great conversations with people who are doing really interesting work. I know it's a little hard to believe, but it's the 25th anniversary of Darren Aronofsky's movie, Pi, which was his debut feature that premiered at the Sundance Film Festival in 1998. Sound designer and re-recording mixer Craig Hennigan recently remixed and remastered the movie in Dolby Atmos for the 25th anniversary release. And he was generous enough to come all the way to Austin to South by Southwest to talk to us about doing that work. I am super thrilled to be sitting down today with my old pal, Craig Hennigan, to talk about the, uh, the Dolby Atmos remixing of Pi. So uh, I'm gonna have to embarrass Craig. I printed this out to make sure I get it all. Uh, Craig is a six-time Emmy Award winner for Stranger Things, mostly for Stranger Thank Things. You. Mostly, yes. The one you one. worked a little love, death, and robots in there. Yes, at it's one been, point. that's been an awesome little project for sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he uh, was nominated for an Academy Award for his work on Roma, which was just a, an amazing movie. Thank you. And nominated for a BAFTA for your work on Black Swan. Yes. So you've had a great old run. school one. Yeah, you had a great run with Darren. And that's how I yeah. met you. Because no way b- Requiem. Well, oh yeah. So way back. Back in the day, uh, before I came to Dolby to create the Dolby Institute, I ran uh, Skywalker Sound, and the the other the other the the other sort of little part of this is um, uh, you went to school with there. When I was in college, I took a film production course uh, my senior year, and the partner that they assigned me to to do our filmmaking exercises was Darren Aronofsky. So um, I have a VHS tape somewhere of our little uh, film exercises that we did when we were in college. And I keep threatening Darren that I'm going to post that on YouTube. But I do it. I, right. I you should do it tonight. I'm, I'm scared of you Darren. You should do it I'm tonight do for the Oscars, just before the Oscars, just before, before Brennan yeah. hopefully wins tonight. I hope so. You can post your thing and link them. So I, so I managed to convince Darren to come to Skywalker to do the, uh, to do the mix on Requiem, and that's when I met you, because right. you had done yeah. the sound editorial on Yeah, well it was done, they were shooting in Brooklyn, in Coney Island, and they were doing their dailies in Toronto, at Deluxe, Film House, and it's now Deluxe. And they had done pie so grassroots, so like low, low budget, that by the time they got to, um, to Requiem, they like, we need, we need to figure out a real dialogue editor, Foley, blah, blah, blah. And that's kind of how we came in. We were... Um, you were Sound Dogs, I'm right? A, I'm, I was part of a company called Sound Dogs, which is basically a co-op, and I'm sort of like third-generation Sound Dog. And uh, Doug, um, Doug Wilkinson is a post-supervisor, and he basically said to Eric and Darren, you should talk to these guys. But the whole idea back then was they would throw the sound in for free if you're going to do the lab deal 
Right. Right. So being they, they Canadian and all that kind of like, it's true though. It's a true thing, especially being in Canada. Yeah. A lot of filmmakers would be up in Toronto and they'd be like, okay, show me what you got because they think they're getting like the D or the E or the really low brow stuff. Long story short, um, Deluxe and their infinite wisdom decide to let the mixer go two weeks before we were supposed to start our mix. And we were all like, well, that's not fucking good. That's no, not because they were just like, classic management style well, well you're a mixer you're a mixer you're a mixer I'm just gonna you're no longer with me I'm just gonna move you over here and this client should be fine with that because you're just there's no creativity you know what I mean all that kind of crap so we were all like no bueno and we ended up Hail Mary to you right and then the great Tom Johnson saw that watched the movie I don't know you Tom might have hooked Johnson. that up yeah and Tom super rad amazing mixer uh, and uh, he's like yeah and then we all Came up to your place. You guys came to Skywalker. And then we'll, scored. We'll, and we'll, we we'll, scored. To, we'll get to pie in a minute. And I we Chronos and Chronos as well scored there too. Chronos. Right? Chronos scored that. Uh, Chronos. Uh, Clint Mansell wrote the score. Chronos Quartet uh, performed it, and we recorded it at the scoring stage at Skywalker Sound. Yeah. And I knew that we were in trouble by lunch on the first day of the mix. I don't know if you remember this, but respect. we 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 scheduled pot, we scheduled Requiem at Skywalker the way we normally would, like a Hollywood studio movie with concurrent. Pre-dubs. Oh no no. You're gonna, we, we got two stages. We'll premix dialogue on one stage. We'll premix effects on the other one. And by lunch, one of you guys came up and you were like, "This is not gonna work." I'm like, "What are you talking about?" He's like, "Darren has to be everywhere there at, for yeah. every decision. Yeah. Yeah. You can't you can't run two stages simultaneously." And we're right. like, "Oh, yeah. okay, that's the way it's gonna be." Yeah. Uh, you know because he's he's. The man knows what he wants, and uh, well, he's very actually, specific. And it actually pays off because if he's there every minute of the effects premix, when we get into the final, and we're two weeks into the final, and he's like, hey, remember that thing? And it's partly the reason a lot of times I feel like music gets so much attention is because so often directors go to the scoring. They're around the score a lot more than they are around the sound design and stuff, you know, for a lot of the bigger Hollywood movies. And Darren, Christopher Nolan, there's a lot of really top guys that they are there every single step of the way. And it's the, it's the main reason, uh, Alfonso is another yeah. guy. Um, it's, um, it's one of the main reasons why their movies sound the way they do. That's right. It's because they are every single step of the way. So you have to elongate the schedule to allow them to process it. And it's tedious, right? Like Darren doesn't come to the premixes as much anymore. Uh -huh. You know, but we spend a lot more incubation time sort right. of at my studio. Like during during during, during yeah, editorial I say, and I should stuff, say you know, Craig so. has continued working with Darren. He started with Darren on Requiem. You've yeah, been like on every so you know, they did the yeah. whale together. Uh, yeah. so you've had yeah. you you kept that relationship. Well it's going. a shorthand, right? And a trust and all those sort of things. But Requiem, Fountain, all those were like every single step of the way he was yeah. and and super supportive and rad it wasn't like we were getting driven into the ground every day it was more like we're a collective and this is what we're working yep. on and you're actually working together on a project and but every yeah. director is going to be different i mean you know we've both worked with directors that you know show up all the time <laughs> well also we've worked with some directors who show up at the final mix yeah. And play back a reel, and then they disappear yeah. for three or four days, yeah. and then they want to hear it back again, yeah. and it's just a different. It's just a different, different process. Approach. I mean, but that can work as well. I mean, ultimately, it, it's whatever. It's those sort of directors, I feel like, well, they're hiring you because they're hiring you for what you do. So you should just do that, and then 
normally when that sort of happens with that kind of director, your relationship with the picture editor is a lot tighter, a lot like there, you kind of find out that they're actually steering the ship, you know, a little bit more. Um, and a lot of directors just like to sort of like have that sort of out of the weeds. I like both, right? Like I like if Darren wants to sit right beside, you know, if I have a dialogue mixer, Darren and myself, and we're working, I like that. But I also like the fact that if a director is like, okay, you're going to have four or five weeks on your own, and then I'm going to come in for a week and we're going to work on it. Quite often that happens, we've also tempted and previewed and we've done, we've done so many dress rehearsals with it that it's sort of, that's, it's dialed in, you know. So, so let's talk about pie. Let's talk about pie. So this anybody, is from, you guys all, has anybody seen pie? <laughs> <laughs> this is from, uh, this is from Wikipedia. I love this description. Pie is a story about a mathematician with an obsession to find underlying complete order in the world. The film explores theories Themes of religion, mysticism, and the relationship to the universe of mathematics. Um, I did not remember this, but Darren won the directing award at Sundance, Sundance for, in 1988. Right. This is his, his first film. The Independent Spirit Award for Best First Screenplay and the Gotham Open Palm Award. So um, before, we, before we kind of pop the hood on this thing and start talking about uh, the restoration and the remix, uh, just to kind of get it back into your consciousness, we've got some clips so let's play the uh, real one, the, uh, the opening of the film. So that's how it, that's how it opens. When um, jungle beats were cool. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we should just establish at the outset that you did not do the original work on this. I film. did not. No, I did not meet Darren and the guys until Requiem. Yeah. yeah so. so the original sound design on this film was done by uh, Brian. Yeah, Brian Emmerich, a fantastic sound designer, uh, based in New York, and um, interesting story. I think he got into that world because of Clint. And Clint is in a, in a band called Pop Will Eat Itself, was living in New York. Uh, I think it was either Clint's girlfriend or Brian's girlfriend or somebody connected them to Darren. And I think they realized they wanted some sound design stuff and Brian was sort of recommended. 
And Brian is also a bass player, composer as well and stuff. So that was the, the classic New York art scene of like connecting the dots for all the different people. But I, I mean, I think, I think we also have to kind of establish the, you know, remind people what Pi was back in 1998 when it premiered at Sundance. I mean, famously, like Darren made the movie for under $100,000. This right? was 60000 I think, right? Right. I, I believe. And this was, a, the, again, another classic story of asking every friend that you know for hundred and hundred dollars, and I'll pay you back one hundred and fifty if the if the movie makes money. And that's how he went around and found money. You know? So I mean, we'll we've got some other clips, and so we'll we'll dig into this a little bit. But it's got a very specific sound design and right. approach to the sound that's kind of driven by the fact they didn't have any money. And I think what did you tell they they mixed the movie in four days? They mixed the movie in four days. Brian basically worked, you know, basically from a script and from edits, and uh, he didn't. It, Back in the sort of like mid '90s, there's a ton of software programs out there, and Brian, you know, obviously there was Pro Tools and WaveFrame and stuff, but Brian chose Bias Peak, which was—I don't even think you could cut to video. I never I even think. heard of that. Right, it's, a, it's like a long lost, you know, Google it, Glenn. Um, that's how old we are, man. <laughs> I can't fit um, But so the idea was. Brian would do all this rad stuff and crazy sound design and distorted sounds and everything like that. And then he would put them on the DAT tape and then the DAT would get DAT shipped up onto DAT and then, it would get, and then it would get shipped over to Oren, who was our picture editor. And uh, he would cut it in to the timeline in the Avid. And then once everything was sort of compiled in the Avid, then it was taken to Sound One. And Sound One was a great, a great place that helped a lot of young filmmakers out. Uh, they worked out of the Brill building. And... Um, Dominic Tavella was the dialogue, dialogue. Well, he was the mixer, as in New York. Quite often, it's not a two. It's usually a one mixer, one mixer setup. Team Lee, Dicht, Lee Dichter, a lot of. And if you look at the, you look at a lot of New York films. The reason why it was one mixer a lot of times was is because of like Woody Allen films and such that were, you know, not effects heavy, not sort of elaborate effects tracks and stuff. So they were able to sort of budget for one person. So, anyways. Dominic basically track laid out the Avid tracks, 16 tracks, 24, whatever it was. Um, and then he mixed the movie in four days kind of thing. And it was fast. It was like, you know, I mean, when the guys came to do this version, they would just tell me stories because I wasn't around. So I didn't really know, you know, the backstory to like, why does this line of dialogue sound like shit? Why is, you know, I mean, you know, it's like those sort of like, we didn't have any time. We didn't have, you know, and, and, but like your point earlier, you embrace that sort of stuff. You actually make it work for the film and for you. And the, the one thing about Darren, you know, is the, the fucking laser focus, the laser on what he was after. And uh, I don't know how long the editorial process took. I mean, you know, I'm not sure it was under any sort of like, I mean, I'm sure maybe Sundance was something that he wanted to get Should to. Had a deadline. That you was know, gonna, yeah, but yeah. so I don't know how hard Brian worked or how many hours he worked. I think it was, it was really a question of like getting some awesome sounds. Um, same with Clint, same with writing that, that very famous opening, you know, that really put, that really put the movie in a right frame of mind. And I think that, that I think is something that can set a film up for success right away. God, when you watch that with those images in black and white, you're like, that's so glued together, right? It was like the first time I heard Stranger Things theme, right? And I was like, oh, fuck. Yeah, that really works with that image, so. 
Okay, so yeah. here we are. It's 2023. It's the 25th anniversary of this film. Somebody gets the great idea. Let's re-release it, and A24 is going to pick it up, yeah. uh, and we're going to remix this movie in Dolby Atmos. We are. So yeah. how did, how that did was the conversation actually, come around for you? Probably two and a half years ago, probably. I think we would have been... I don't know what I would have been doing with Darren, but it was like, hey, the rights are coming back. Um, this, is a he, really, this is a really interesting and, thing that I didn't yeah. know until recently. Darren sold the movie to, I think, Artisan. Artisan. So, at the time, but it was a 25-year deal. So that's why all this is happening, because Darren got the rights to the movie. Yeah, back. which he picked up from being a young filmmaker when Pi was done. He picked that tip up from Jim Jarmusch. Jim owns all his own films. They, he, gets, he licenses them to, you know different territories and stuff. But so Darren did a 25 year deal and, uh, which was good because know, artisan doesn't exist anymore. So. <laughs> was that? It went uh, somehow Lionsgate, like when, it, when Lions, we'll get into where the gates logo what, is on the head is on it, it as well. And they had picked up Requiem. So somehow they had distribution, but yeah, it was one of those things where two years ago, maybe two and a half years ago, coming back to us, we want to look at doing, you know, an up, you know, Atmos version. They were doing a 4K, or they actually did it in 8K, and they got Maddie to come in. Maddie is our cinematographer. They came in and do a regrade of the black and white. I'm sure they did some visual effects work that Darren doesn't want anybody to know about. But um, he, uh, they did an 8K version for posterity, and then they're going to release the 4K. I think Dolby Atmos. I think they're making the DCPs now, and they're going to do. I think they're going to do that thing, you know, with A24 so good at, which is finding little you know, art house installations or draft house or whatever to sort of like do these sort of screenings, you know? And um, yeah. So the call comes to you, like you start to talk with Darren. Yeah, it was basically call Eric, find out where all the assets are because as, as most of you probably know, when a film, especially a film done in 97, 98, and it was done for so low budget and I'm sure Sound One sort of archived it, but it probably wasn't something where it was gonna no, be. come on. And yeah. Sound One doesn't exist anymore either. Right, so we basically, I would... But if was this was like, a studio yeah. movie that had been made in 98, you would have called up Warner Brothers, they would have sent over... Yeah, would have sent over, I did you know, it with Requiem. We did it with Requiem. We did it, On Requiem we did it, because we, we did an Atmos version out a few years ago, and I had to call Skywalker and say, where are the original 5-1? At least that was 5-1. This was not. This was a mono dialogue a stereo music and a mono effects track. And the mono effects track had the footsteps and the backgrounds and the sound design and the awful production noise, the PFX, all that sort of stuff was as in one track. But even that was hard to find because it was like, I felt like the Lionsgate vault or wherever it existed was sort of that Indiana Jones last shot, you know, where I'm sure it's just like, you got it. You just got archives of stuff and boxes would show up at my house and it'd be like the original, production sound i'm like on dad i'm like right? darren this is i can't use this this is not you know i need i need at least stems um but what i'd really like is the actual project well it wasn't mixed in pro it wasn't laid up in pro tools so that doesn't exist so it was like okay i'm gonna deal with the stems and the stems didn't really match the print master that i had either so because it was a four-day mix, so I'm sure that they were doing fixes and flying. Fixes I think they might have been. I, I haven't talked to Dominic about this, but it was definitely like normally a print mouse is supposed to match the stems, and then you know you can just off you go. Um, but that was an extra layer of like, oh, this doesn't quite sound as loud as it does in the print master, or as low as in the print master. So all those extra hurdles of figuring out 
but even just getting the the sound, like yeah. the, an actual version of it, was was quite an ordeal. So say it again. So the stems you got were what? A mono dialogue, mono dialogue, stereo music, and a mono effects track. Mono effects track with everything tied. Yeah, and and honestly, they didn't do a fully full. They didn't do a fully track. You know what I mean? Like there were some footsteps here and there, um, but it wasn't done. It, none of it was approached the way you would normally approach a studio quote unquote movie, which again, I think leads to the charm of it. It's not done, not every single thing is manicured and not every single thing is like, you know, it's, it's rough, it's supposed to be rough. So the next scene that we've got, I think actually kind of illustrates this pretty well. This is from Reel 2 and this is, um, this is the subway, uh, this is the subway scene. So this is kind of, our character Max is, uh, y'all know from seeing the film is, is um, uh, his mental state is deteriorating, shall we say. And he's in the subway and um, a brand shows up. I've never really understood what the brain was doing there. but I never asked Darren either, but okay. I guess it represents his id, his brain, clearly. Sure. Worse for me. Um, let's run uh, clip two, uh, subway. So, yeah, unpack that sequence for us. Uh, and you know, in I'm, terms I'm of just, Atmos, or, or yeah, exactly. Yeah. And like, what? So obviously, your hands are pretty tied. Yeah, I mean, to get yeah. So the approach technically would be, I dumped everything into Pro Tools, um, and then sort of staring at a mono dialogue stem, and I was like, okay, well, I'll make a few Atmos tracks, and then the, the normal or one of the ways to do stuff. And there's no, for me, with Atmos, there's no right or wrong way, right? You know, the, it's if it sounds cool and it sounds right and it down mixes correctly and there's no weird face stuff, then I feel like you can do what you want. Um, so dialogue-wise, it was like, I didn't want to move a whole bunch of things around in the dialogue track, but we did clip out a few sounds here and there. But with the effects track, it became a little bit more difficult. Like the horn would be a specific example of like, well, I wanted that horn to be discreetly right behind us. 
So you just get in there and you just clip it out. And then you have to sort of, you know, sort of be a little fudgy with the reverbs and a little like, you know, you just try to sort of like feather it so it doesn't sound like it's too jumpy. So those are the challenges with something like when you're dealing with a mono, a mono track. Thankfully, there's no footsteps or other junk on top of it. So I can kind of get away with it, right? Um, I, you know, yes, it's just that question. This is one know. of the things I want to ask you about because I think you, you probably also benefited from kind of the design aesthetic of the film, which is one of the things I, I really noticed right away when you sent this clip over was like, um, there's very often different things happening in the track versus right. the image. Right. And I think that, again, you, what you said earlier on was like, Darren really kind of embraced the limitations of his budget and you're getting very different information from the sound of the film as opposed to the right to the image. Yeah. So yeah. the track is actually not that busy. So you were. It's able very to focused. And again, I think Darren understands, and he's always said this is like the first, especially with an independent movie. The first thing that makes an independent movie feel like an independent movie to Darren is the sound, because quite often, not a lot of money and effort and time is spent on the sound. So I don't know where he picked that up, whether it was a professor of his in, in, uh, in film school or whatever, but he, till this day, he still takes that seriously. And he knew with a film like this that if you have the music from Clint and you have interesting sound design, that the audience is a little bit more forgiving if a line of dialogue isn't as pristine as it could be or something. Nothing was more apparent when we listened to this in a Dolby Atmos theater 25 years later with the technology of, you know, Atmos of how obvious noises and light hums and buzzes and all that kind of mouth clicks and all that kind of stuff that just weren't edited out of the track, you know? And so as I was going along from a creative level, for sure, there was always like the little editorial, like, oh, I can get rid of that mouth click here. I can tighten that up. Or sync maybe looks a little off and stuff, right? But Darren, it's interesting. I mean, the horn is a specific example. It's a pretty easy example. You know, it was like, okay, that's going to go behind us. Um, the idea with the film was to try to make it as immersive as possible. And Darren, again, has been since the beginning. And Eric, his Eric Watson, his producer, was like, well, this now sounds the way we've always wanted it to sound. Which reminded me when we were at Skywalker with, there's a famous scene in Requiem with a fridge. And the fridge is behind Sarah. And Darren couldn't understand. He would get up and he'd like, this speaker, this speaker right here, this is exactly where I want it to be. And this is like 2000, right? You know, and it's like, dude, it's 5.1. He was just, I don't understand. I don't understand. What do you mean it's 5.1? This row of speakers is all one thing. No, no, I want it out of this speaker, you know? So Atmos, in some levels, is designed for someone like, he was like 12 years like, too early. He was like 12 years early. Um, and then, it, and then it becomes, and this is the great thing about Atmos, and the interesting thing about directors is like, uh, and Alfonso was the same way with in Roma, was like, okay, so are you at their perception? Or is it your as the audience? So I would say, oh, it's going to be off to the right. And I'd be like, no, it's going to be over here. Because they are looking at the eye line of Max, you know? And to me, I'm like, well, fuck, that sounds... Why would the phone be over there? His eye line is going over here, but the camera's flipped around. It's, oh, and maybe if you guys have mixed an Atmos with directors, and it's the same idea of like, what rules can you break or not break, or do you care about the rules kind of stuff? And so Darren, yeah, years ago, it has been, this is how we wanted it to always be. It's kind of cool, right? But at the same time, if you don't have the content, 
to sort of pull that sort of stuff off, then it's, it's, it doesn't really matter, right? And the great thing about Pi is that, like you said, everything is really focused. So there's not a lot of noise. I mean, there's noise in the movie and there's like ringing and distortion, but it's not, um, there's not multiple layers of, of stuff, right? Like when you go see a big action movie in Atmos, it sounds great, but I'm like, I don't really know where, maybe it's coming from the overheads or maybe it's like, and I said this to you from the beginning, like Atmos to me has always been a format that allows the small, quieter, intimate areas of a film to really shine, you know? And I think the first thing I did was, was that, you know? And, and when I got into the bigger action things, it felt like it was harder, you know, when you, especially when you got a 60 piece orchestra blaring around and stuff and you kind of, What's the Walter Murch thing? Your ear can only pick up three things or perceive. It's sort of sound perceptions, right? Of like what you can perceive or not, which is really cool with this film is because almost dealing with just a mono track forced me to sort of be like, okay, well, I'm going to up mix this a little bit, but I'm just going to sort of treat it with a plug-in for the LCR, but then I'm going to make a few sends and uh, returns so I can actually peel a few things off. I'll make a few object tracks. Um, I'm going to do a halo of the music. So I, I built a ceiling of the music that's just a reverb ceiling. Um, so I would send stereo through an up mix plug-in so I'd have a bed of 7.1. Um, and then I'd have a ceiling that I could kind of up and down because I didn't just want, I think so many people mix an Atmos and they're not using the format from what it's, I think, designed for, which is to be able to go to big. Not just like, it's out of every speaker, awesome. You know, like, it's like, let's use it. And the great thing about even the opening cue, I start stereo, I left it stereo. And then slowly the next like, you know, eight, whatever it was like eight bars in or whatever, then it was like, or I would look for a drop and then I'd kind of open it up that way. So I know this is a stereo mix. You don't really, you can't really sort of, I can't really demonstrate those sort of things, but um, I'm doing that a lot in this, in this project because that's, for me, that's what that format's all about. And it allows to retain, I think, what Pi, the essence of Pi as well, which is to go dynamically small. And again, that's a Darren thing, right? The big, loud subway horn, you know, and then into like a small whiteout dynamically to sort of do that. So tell me about the conversations that you had with Darren when you when you started working on the project. Like, what was his intention? What did he want you to do? Like, did you guys have rules of the road? Like, I could easily see you start to go down rabbit yeah, holes of like, oh, well, th you know, this right. wasn't, we didn't really have time to do this. Let's just, let's do, let's work some more sound. Like, did you actually put any new sound yeah, design I did. elements in this? Yeah, I did, yeah, and that was a bit of a, it was a bit of a back and a forth. I think Darren, as any filmmaker, wanted it to be as best as it can be. And to him, sometimes that's like, we'll just cut new stuff. And I'm like, no, 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 the fucking retention, the way the movie sounds and the way people perceive the sound is like a, a real important thing, right? And why mess with it? It sounds amazing, right? Um, but I cut a whole layer of backgrounds and atmospheres for sure. Um, so going scene by scene and sort of looking at what they did, trying to dissect what they did and sort of add something that sort of embellishes that and makes it feel like it's an atmos, but not too obtrusive. Um, we put new feet in, in a few spots, um, fixed up a couple sort of body falls and punches. The sound design is super rad. Brian did an amazing job with the sound design in terms of like the craziness, um, just the distortion and the ringing. So I didn't really, I didn't really feel like I needed to do that. There was a few scenes with rain that inside, they were inside with rain. So it was like kind of just making sure that stuff was, I mean, fuck, if we're going to use Atmos, I want to be able to use the format. I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to put something out there that's like 
that you just throw an up mix plug on it and you know there's a little bit in the surrounds a little bit in the overheads and you call it a day it's like that's not that's not what we do it's not what i do with darren um but he never really gave me any rules he's he's a reactionary director right like he he kind of wants you to kind of do something and then and then he'll pick on something if he, if he doesn't like it quite often it's what mood he's in you know so it's like a lot of playbacks and it's like quite often what did he, it's what did like for lunch that yeah day? what a lunch you know and a lot of a lot of this was done i worked we worked every time he would come to los angeles i would do you know half a day or a day with him at my house and then we got to a point where okay now editorially it's built i can do a lot of panning a lot of stuff i'm i'm fortunate i built a little atmos space and um so once it gets to that point, then it's like, okay, now let's go to a theater and make sure that the low end is working, make sure the volume and the power is still sort of there, you know? And so that's when we ended up going, we ended up mixing at Deluxe in Hollywood and uh, did maybe a handful of days there too. But it was very, it was almost like just making a remix of a song or something where you're not, it wasn't two weeks straight of like banging it out. It was honestly, it was like, okay, see you in a couple of weeks. And then his assistant would email me saying, he's going to be here for find a stage and scramble to find a stage and fire up the project and carry on, which was cool because then you could actually have some perspective, you know? And that, so. Let's take a look at uh, the next clip. This is from Real 3. Um, it's called Discover Pi. I think this is sort of the, the, the voiceover with the... Oh, with all the swirling around and yeah. stuff, sure. You, what, yeah. Well, I mean, again, I think, you know, I, I kind of chose a few clips. Just, again, I know we're in stereo, but sort of imagining what the format of, of Dolby Atmos sort of allows people like us creatively to sort of do. And, and this is another prime example of, they had a lot of, I think Brian did, you know, whatever sound design he did with the voices and it's like speeding up and slowing down. And it's like, I had to clip all those out of the mono track and then put them, I put them across maybe four or five, maybe six uh, objects. And then just, just kind of went for it. And I kind of looked, you know, you kind of look, I'm looking for anchors on the screen, right? So I think this scene, you can kind of go around us and then there's like a little sunshine and Max moves out of the way and the sun sort of comes up. So kind of making sure that everything gets back to center channel for that and then back away and stuff. And then there's a voiceover that goes over top of it that I think I maybe put a little bit in the LCR just to make it a little bit thicker. Yeah. Great, let's run the clip. Through the concentric golden rectangles, you generate the mythical golden spiral. Pythagoras loved this shape, for he found it everywhere in nature. The Nautilus shell, ram's horns, whirlpools, tornadoes, our fingerprints, our DNA, and even our Milky Way. 922, personal note. When I was a little kid, my mother told me not to stare into the sun. So once when I was six, I did. At first, the brightness was overwhelming, but I had seen that before. I kept looking, forcing myself not to blink. And then the brightness began to dissolve. My pupil shrank to pinholes, and everything came into focus. And for a moment, I understood my new hypothesis. If we're built from spirals while living in a giant spiral, then everything we put our hands to is infused with the spiral. Cool, and also, it's again, it's Clint's music anchors the whole. I want to talk. I want to ask you about Clint's music, um, yeah. and obviously, so you said you had a stereo, just a stereo. Yeah, pair. it was a stereo, basically a stereo of uh, whatever you know Dominic made, right? And did he not? You didn't. You couldn't. Did you call Clint up? Like, did he not have any of these original elements still hanging out on a? I don't know, a dat tape somewhere. That I can... think you know, honestly, when it comes to stuff, it's like, what kind of rat's nest do you want to open up? 
because one, I don't think he did. Um, and I don't even know if he knew how to stem something out back then. I think it was like, you know, he mixed it down the way he did and that was sent to Dominic and Dominic put it in the movie, you know, and uh, why reinvent it on some levels, right? The, the cool thing was Clint came, we, when we did some playbacks, you know, Darren and Clint and Eric, Eric Watson would show up and we would play through the movie or play through a couple of reels, let them live with it for a bit. Um, you know, and I think Clint just wanted to make sure that I wasn't, you know, it's very easily, a guy like me can like put too much low end into something or make it too abrasive or too loud or too everywhere, you know? And I think making sure that the stereo or the front wall, at least the LCR, worked as good as it could and retain what pie meant to those guys, but make it immersive enough that it felt like, you know, we were using Atmos, you know. I didn't pan any music, like we didn't do any. I know that if I had stems, Darren would have made me try to pan a few things and stuff because we just do that in every other movie nowadays, right? Like take the cello or take the something, right? We didn't have that again, you know? So it was like, make it, a little thicker. I didn't add a lot of EQ. I think I added maybe a little bit of compression and most of my time was spent with like, how much do I want to have in the surrounds? How much do I want to have in the overheads? How much low end do I want to add to something, you know? And uh, just making sure that it, it felt inherent to Pi, but felt big and large enough that we could make it feel like we're not like cheating, you yeah. know? Yeah. I mean, I've never known Darren to be like a terribly nostalgic, you know, person so i'm kind of curious what was it like what was he like on the stage when it was know, funny it was interesting that 25 years later well, it, that really launched there was career. a layer of like especially when he sat down and she was like i could see him like he's like thinking thinking about you know his dad's in the movie his dad had just passed away a little while earlier so he's thinking about all this other stuff from that time versus thinking even about the sound, you know? And so it, 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 with a filmmaker like him, especially when you're revisiting something 25 years later, there's all these layers. And, and as, as a sound mixer, you know, part of it is, um, psychologist isn't the right word, but part of it is to like, let, let the directors or the creatives be comfortable enough to sort of like live with it a little bit. And then we can kind of get into the work, you know? And, uh, and it's interesting to see Darren now between like Requiem to now, how like, you know, matured maybe, clearly he's matured, but like there's a confidence in him now that I think back then it was like angry young man, I wanna, I need to make my mark kind of stuff, you know? And, uh, and so seeing him revisit that person, interestingly on Requiem we did it, um, we did an Atmos version and I forced him to watch it. He's like, I don't wanna watch it. Like, you need to make sure that this is what you want. And he, we came out of the screening, and interestingly enough, he's like, I don't, I don't think I can make that movie now. Which I think is a good indication of any director, you know, or any, any art, artist, you know. It's like, that's a moment in time, and that's how I was. That's the, that's the resources I had. It's the best I could do. And then you sort of move on. Yeah. I'm, I'm really glad that you said that, because with the, with the thing that, because I knew that we were going to sit down and talk, so I, I watched the movie again last weekend, yeah. and I hadn't seen it since in a theater since 98. Yeah. Did you see it at Sundance? Did you go to Sundance? I did not see it at Sundance uh, that year, but I saw it when, when Artisan released it. Mm. And uh, you can see the DNA of 
pie really clearly in Requiem. Oh, 100%. The whiteouts, you know, the, the pill popping. Yeah, you know, just the quick that. cuts, the, yeah. you know, the, yeah. the, the, the mathematical. The staccato-ness yeah. of it, the dialogue, yeah. The, yeah. You know, the, the, the treatment of the sound effects. Yeah. Um, and then you get to whale, which is, yeah. I mean, talk about growth and progression. Yeah. As, a, as an, I mean, the whale is an exercise in restraint compared to that right. earlier work. Right, yeah. And so, I, you know. And sonically you it was too. Sonically it was, it was a quiet, it's, it's a quiet movie. It's, uh, look, it, and Darren will say, it's his COVID film. You know, it was a $6 million film. They just shot it all in one room. It's based on a play, Samuel, and Sam's play. And Darren had, has had it for a while, right? Didn't, um, didn't know how to make it. Didn't find an actor and saw Brendan in a trailer for a small Brazilian film. And somehow, again, the genius of a director, you know, Darren, like, wait a minute. And then got in contact with him. And then a year later, you know, that's, that's it's, uh, it's, Darren's it's, not agreeing with my story, so therefore... It's Austin for South By. People are already drunk. It's, a, right. you know, it's three <laughs> o'clock in the afternoon. Anyway, so you're right. I mean, it's interesting to see. I think it's interesting that, I mean, I've been very, very fortunate with the directors I work with. And I find it after, you know, 20, 95, 96, 97 is sort of when I turned pro or whatever. So doing it for a while now and seeing some of these directors grow or what they choose to do or what they don't choose to do, the paths that they take, you know, and, and all that kind of stuff. And Darren's been one of those guys where, you know, I'll follow him into any, any, anywhere because um, he's just rad to work with. And I'm always excited to see what he's to work with. But yeah, The Whale, I felt was like, oh, it's an interesting thing. But it's also similar to The Wrestler, you know. So, you know, and we did Noah and then we did Mother. And, you know, he's just kind of swinging, you know, swinging for the fences a little bit. For sure, yeah. No, and, uh, and Mother's definitely a swing yeah, for the fences. Yeah, you without know. Without a doubt, without a um, doubt. So then, you know, reel it back in a little bit with this and just remind people, remind the world that I, he can do this other thing. But yeah. he's also producing these great, like he does this yes. Limitless series with Nat Geo, yeah. you know, which is, it's a whole, there's, as, as many directors, they're very, very broad yeah. spectrum of interests and stuff. Yeah. And that's interesting. He's bringing that stuff into his work. He's not pigeonholed by like the pie thing or the requiem thing yeah. or, you know, yeah. I'm going to want to get to questions. So we're going to skip ahead and play the fifth clip um, in just a minute. But I, I love the story that you were telling about, you know, Darren on the requiem mix saying, no, I want it to come from that yeah. speaker right there. Yeah. So now he does have now he does. tool, Dolby Atmos. And I was, I was kind of surprised when yeah. you told me that you guys were mixing the whale you, you did, you did you, the whale is an Atmos mix. It is an Atmos mix. And I yeah. love what you said about yeah. like yeah. one of the powers of the format is in subtlety and yes. specificity. Yeah. So, yeah. I, you know, I think a lot of people would be kind of surprised about like this very intimate one room thing that there's an Atmos mix, but what did you, what did, what did, what is rain. In the Atmos track on the that? rain? <laughs> it's just the rain, rain, from rain overhead? mostly the rain, you know, but it's about being subtle with the rain. It's just, there's a resolution in Dolby Atmos, right? There's just, there's more real estate for lack of a better way to describe it. There's more sonic real estate to be able to put rain and different types of rain and layers of rain, for instance, that allows it to be heard versus cramming it all in like one little area and stuff. So I felt like, you know, it's subtle movie, but it can still be focused. And that's, I think, what Dolby Atmos allows is there's a sonic focus sort of ability with it that I've always felt like we can really tune it in. Um, 
interestingly enough, I kind of like the 5-1 mix better for the whale because it takes place all in one room and it's sort of claustrophobic and all that kind of stuff. But we mixed it originally in Atmos and, uh, you know, went down from there. The fountain we did in Dolby EX. Does anybody remember Dolby EX? So it was a center channel surround. So you guys, was, you guys was, were playing seven, with. Dolby was, was playing with at the time. It yeah, would have it been two thousand one. It was seven point one with a center channel in the back. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it would have been. Yeah. And it was like two thousand six, two thousand five, six era. It didn't last very long, but uh, um, I remember Gary Rystrom did something in it. We did, we did the fountain in it, and again because like Darren's always searching for. Although with Atmos, I had to sell him on it. I don't. Do you really need to fucking do that? Blah blah blah. On on on. Uh, on Noah, yeah, but I did. <laughs> there you go. All right, let's uh, let's run this. So this is the last. Uh, this is real five. This is descent into madness. Oh, this I is like, when he's ripping everything apart. And, I like the way you. Yeah. Uh, I like the way you title these tracks. Let's uh, <laughs> let's let's hear Max's descent into madness, please. So one of the things I love about that is, is when I go to film schools or I talk with young filmmakers, young directors about sound, you know, one of the things I always talk with them about is like, this is a very powerful tool for you to let the audience have the subjective experience that your main character is having and, and communicate that internal state to them. The thing I love about this kind of sequence is like, there's nothing in that that a film school student can't do, right? There's, oh, 100%. It's really yeah. simple stuff. Yeah. It's just, it takes some creativity and thought. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, again, that's, the subjectivity is a big thing for Darren's films. Um, and he's just tapped into the idea that how, how sound and music can actually do that. The production value of sound and music, all that distortion, the ringing, you know, obviously then the real sounds of stuff getting torn apart, ripped apart, and the static and the electricity zaps and stuff. Um, it's, it's really about using sound as another tool, as it's just not, a, it's just not there. It's like, what can I do with it to make the audience experience it and make them feel like they are feeling what Max is feeling or, 
or not, or like, holy fuck, you know, kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So that particular sequence, any any mixers that you, as a sweeteners that you that you I just I don't think I mean I think I might have touched up the him ripping stuff and maybe a couple electricity. I mean nothing major. I, I mean it, again, those are such powerful things. I think if Darren really wanted me to, I probably could have redone the whole thing. Um, Did it's you just, do any extra foley for this? Neat, uh, we just shot a few like feet here and there. I replaced a few footsteps. That's just I think there was a couple scenes. I know that when they were probably mixing them. And the guys hadn't even thought like, oh shit, now we're on a mixing stage, which is a big thing versus an avid editorial suite, specifically in New York. Anytime I go to New York and they're cutting, they're usually in some shitty place in Chinatown and there's so much noise. There's so, no, I'm, I'm being like serious. There's so much noise and outside. I'm it's like, it's like they're cutting here. I'm like, it's, it's truly, it can, it can be like just horns and, and stuff. And then I send a little stereo of, you know, what I'm working on in my studio. And they're like, well, we can't really hear... I'm like, fuck, you know, like, you're not, you're not even, and then you get it to a dub stage and like, oh, right, you know, and I feel like they probably, I think Dominic probably was like, shit, we need some footsteps here, and then he called in a favor quickly, and it's like, you know, like little tippy stuff, so replacing some of that, and I mean, you know, it's like, how far do you take a project like this when you only have a mono dialogue, you know, if I had splits, and if I had like an in, a real project, I could actually look at the sound design from Brian and what the sound effects were, then maybe I could sort of assess it. But then it wouldn't be the same film. It wouldn't have been and, in the spirit yeah. of the thing if you no, just not, built not, a completely new Which track. is what I fought. I didn't fight against with Darren, but I definitely was like strong with like, you, I don't want to, this is great. You don't need to, it, no, trust me. It's going to sound great in Atmos and, you know, people are going to be into it, man. You know, yeah. That's great. Let's open up and take some questions. Anybody have any uh, questions? Uh, for Darren, someone's got a microphone for you right here. Thanks so much for this. Um, how much time did you spend on this remix? I think, um, I mean, if I had to sort of like boil it all down, it was probably two weeks of sort of editorial work and then maybe another four or five days of sort of like final quote unquote mixing on like a, a real dub stage, you know? So, but that was like amortized was way over. Way more time than they had when they originally did the movie. Probably, <laughs> yeah. Four days, right? A night maybe. Um, so yeah, it was one of those things, but it was really one of those like, you know, Darren lives in New York, I'm in Los Angeles, so it was like whenever he'd come into town, we'd sort of work on the remix or the Atmos mix kind of stuff. So it was like, you know, a couple hours here, a Sunday, Saturday. So if I looked at it, it was maybe two, yeah. Uh, yeah. Any other questions? Nothing. Great. Yeah, right here in the oh. front. Oh, I'm sorry. You first yeah, and then sorry. we'll come. I didn't, I didn't raise my hand, sorry. Uh, so did you do this as an individual or did you have a team around you? No, I, this one I did on my own. I mean, the Foley, my guys in Toronto, Steve Bain and uh, Pete Persaud, you know, pulled in a favor with those guys to do some feet. But everything else was just, you know, myself. And How stuff. much do yeah. you mix these days? All, what do you mean? I mean, I, I, think of, I think of you as like a, well, I think of you as a sound designer mixer yeah. who's like mixing, you know, you're, you're doing your Atmos stuff yeah. in your sound design room. But are you on the final dub on everything that you do? Not, the only thing that I don't really do is Stranger Things. Like, so I'll do pre-mixing. So Will and I and Mark Patterson do Stranger. Those guys are sort of on the final line, right? So I'm doing a bunch of pre-mixing and a bunch of mixing at my house for all the sound design that I then send to Will. And that's born out of a schedule, a television, quote-unquote, streaming schedule that just doesn't have the amount of time that we'd have on a feature. But the sound needs to be, you know, and Corey knows this. Corey cuts with me on... on I, mean, I didn't on mean that. to insult you, you know. Like no, 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 but you are. I'm just, no, but people, it is, it's, it's a good question. 
but most of the time, I'm, I'm, if I'm going to do a project, I try to take it all the way through, you know. Um, so when you're uh, mixing audio from all the way back then with new Foley, how are you bringing those together in a cohesive way? And is there anything that you're doing to enhance the older audio? I did, actually. We didn't talk much about the technical aspect of how like the dialogue just didn't sound that great the original dialogue and so i had to and is yeah. that just because of like you know the way they I, I don't know. the way they run and gun when they were recording i'm or? not sure if it was you know the wasn't there a, back in the day there was like all sorts of different filtering that they would do for optical that was a, it was a it was a really get, big thing i remember this know, in skywalker when we yeah. went back in and, and remastered the special editions on star wars and the dialogue just like, sounded it so, rolled off it, it was like it was so sharp pinched. and shrill so that this this stuff was the same way and that's the same era right you know and i felt like there's like certain filtering that you know maybe dominic did because that's just you knew it was going to stick to the print in a better it way. Had to go, be it, had to, it had to go to optical. And it had to go to optical. So I had to warm it up for sure. There's no doubt about it. And, uh, you know, a bunch of different transient designer type plugins. Definitely, I think I even used a little bit of a graphic EQ as well as a parametric EQ, some compression. Um, I just tried to warm it up more than anything else. It felt like it was, it just felt like it was dated. Out of anything in the, in, it just felt like it wasn't, you know, and then it, you know, you're dealing with production sound on a low-budget independent movie, so it's not even great production sound to begin with. So, like, how do you, you know, you listen to that stuff out of the technology of the speakers we have nowadays, you're like, holy shit, it's, like, really not great, you know? Um, so that was sort of one of the first things to do. And then just sort of taking the Foley or whatever new sounds and making sure that it would match into that, whether it's just, you know, filtering it more than anything else. Um, yeah, I, I didn't, there wasn't too much to do with the feet other than, you know, just kind of get it to sort of fit into it. And a lot of music around those areas anyways. So you kind of like, you know, in filmmaking, you have a lot of room to hide a little bit with like how rough something can be, you know? Yeah. You don't have anything to hide behind on this, in this track. There's not a lot of... No, yeah. no. I mean, you know, there's tons, like, they wanted to do an M&E, because A24 sent me the specs, they bought it, and they're like, okay, so this is a delivery, and I'm like, you, you don't want an M&E for this, are you guys out of your mind? Like, it's going to get... Special will be like, this is, is what it is, because we're not going back to redo all the feet and all the hand pats that are missing and all the stuff that a foreign version, you know, sort of requests when an m and &E person goes through QC quality control. Um, you know, so it's special, you know, you know. And are they really going to do... It kind of has that, that feeling almost of like an Italian movie from the 50s. Like, there's just a, you know, there's a lot of... I'll tell Darren, of, I'll tell Darren next time I see There's a lot of stuff that, you know, that. see a sound, hear a sound that you're not hearing. Well, and that's actually really interesting from but a... For, but it plays as a stylistic choice. From an aesthetic, aesthetic, aesthetically, absolutely. I think, again, any good filmmaker knows that that... You don't need to hear a dog, see a dog. You can, you know, it doesn't need to be that way. And this is a, just a prime example. And he's done this through his whole career. You know, but I think all the best film directors do. You know, they, they sort of see sound. Yes, you have the real stuff, but then, you know, you have what sound can imply or suggest or all those sort of things. Yeah. Yeah, right here. Um, did Brian ever get to hear the final? Uh, he has not. I hope he's going to see it soon. Um, I talked about sending him out a sort of stereo mix, and he's like, oh, I'll wait to sort of see the, so the, you know, but we were, in, I told him, I talked to him a bunch of times through it and stuff, and, uh, but nothing came up from Darren about like how to, if, did we need to do new stuff or new sounds and stuff like that? So, yeah. Yeah. Great question. Yeah, here in the back. 
let us. Uh, we'll get you the. We'll get the. Get you the microphone. Hey, hey. Did you uh, struggle with ear fatigue on this kind of content much? Did you have to? Did you get your full days in, or do you got to walk away now? You, and gotta, then you always got to walk. Yeah, you have Stretch to be. Jaw. Yeah, you have to be smart, right? Um, mix on dim. Yeah, mix on dim. The end sequence, that little th at the end, that, that piercing stuff, the really heavy stuff, you know, was, was kind of like. It's very easy to get pretty loud pretty quickly, and again, with the technology that Atmos provides. I'm sure there's frequencies that are in this track that the guys didn't even really hear back then, you know. So I had to chase some of those, you know. But a lot of it is just being responsible, you know. I, I did my time where, as an editor and a sound designer, that I was like fucking cutting so loud in my room and trying to squeeze out every single sound. And, uh, you know, so yeah, I've beat up my hearing enough, I feel. So I'm trying to be more responsible when I mix. And know? the next day you come in and go, wait, what, what a little bit of that, yeah, yeah right. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, thankfully it this movie was mixed, so it was like just sort of being responsible to that, just making sure that it stuck to the level that it needed to stick at without getting too. The thing about being loud, you, you don't want to be uncomfortable, right? I, I mean, I, you know, I'm sure we've all been in films. I, I certainly have, where you're just like, oh, it just doesn't need to be. And and if you just come down a few dB or even two and a half or two it lets your ears actually release and you actually are more engaged. There's like a weird psychological thing. But interestingly enough, it takes a long time to get a mix to that window, to get it into, I always look at it like um, the Jedi, like when he's in, like for the Death Star, when he's in that little thing and he's trying to like, that I feel for me in a mix, the most fun time is probably week three or week four. You've done all the building, you've done all, you got the real music, the real dialogue, the real sound effects, and you know, you've done two and a half weeks of like putting the pieces together, doing all that sort of stuff. But then by week three, if you have the energy and a director that wants to go for it, you can really take a movie. And it's, it's a short yard game though, right? Like it's a percent here, a percent there. But again, someone like Darren would be like, what if? And that's something that film or anything actually doesn't have enough time to sort of do. The what ifs. What if we did this? What if we did that? It's why when you hear All's Quiet, you know, or Dune from a few years ago, or, you know, those movies mixed for Apocalypse Now is the famous one. They fucking mix that for uh, a year and a half. It, you know, which is rad, but the what if moments, right? Like the, and being free enough on a stage to, to know that your track is already solid. What Alfonso, we did this on Roma. We did it all the time on Roma. We would like go back and revisit something. Like, what if we did this, this, and this? And, you know, and sometimes you experiment, it doesn't work. And other times you're like, oh yeah. And then that leads to something else, right? But everything needs to sort of work, which is generally reverse of what a studio film is, which is about money, 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 time. It's really expensive on a dub stage, right? It's why the proliferation of smaller rooms, rooms like that, sound design rooms that have full Atmos because you can spend the time to fuck around and make experiments and, and all that kind of stuff without burning $1,500 an hour on a dub stage to sort of, you know, play around. Um, any final questions? Hey, so you just touched on something there. I, I've definitely seen a growing trend of more and more people building Atmos rooms at home. Can you kind of talk about your decision to do that? I think for me it was, uh, it, it was just because I mix and I edit at the same time. Um, it was sort of an inevitable thing for me. And uh, I just wanted to have, like I'd been at Fox for a long time. Disney had just bought Fox. A few people were retiring. And, it was, I, and I avoided working from home for a long, long time. But 
streaming was sort of coming in. It was like a confluence of a bunch of different things. And ultimately, I was going to build a room at home. I wanted to sort of have an Atmos. I didn't want to build a theater, though. I wanted to build a creative space, and that's kind of what I have. It's more like a giant rec room that has a 7.1.4. I have a little S6. Um, I use the Dolby toolkit, whatever, the production toolkit, the render, so everything's coming off of one rig. I don't really record there. I don't really, I don't, I mix there till about 85 to 90% of what it needs to do, and then I go to a stage to sort of master it and finish it and all that kind of stuff. But your question is right. I feel... If you are mixing and you are sound designing and you have a director like an Aronofsky that wants to come in and play around, it's the best place to do it. It's like making a record, right? You know, you're, you're kind of like, you're just doing it on, a, on maybe a, a better, a bigger level, you know, and stuff. And usually they get really bored. If you start going through your library, start looking for sounds like, oh, fuck, I got to go, right? Because it's time consuming to sort of mess around with sound and play around. But if you have them engaged and you can get some feedback right away, in a sound design room, it's just is going to pay off down the road. And money and schedules don't, you know, there's, you, I think as sound designers, we give up so much because it's just not a nine to five job. You're constantly thinking about it. You're constantly doing it. Um, but the payoff is something like this, or hopefully the payoff is something that is more rewarding than just working, you know, on a nine to five deal, you know. Well, and I think that you touched on this, but part of it is just the the proliferation of the streaming platforms, and now oh a lot God. of the episodic. So I know, I know, you know, Stranger. This what this last season of Stranger Things was the first one that was done in Atmos. Yeah, well, the brothers had the brothers. We had been pitching Atmos since the beginning, um, but they're really the Duffer brothers, Matt and Ross. They they really wanted to be. What's it going to sound like on the iPad? What's it going to sound like at home? And, uh, and Amos really, you know, season three when Mark and I and Will, like I kind of rejiggered the team after season two, brought Mark and Will in and Mark Patterson and Will Files who are much more film, well, they are film mixers. So we changed the aesthetic of like what our approach was going to be and sonically, but they still didn't want to do Atmos. But interestingly enough, when we do their premieres, we'll throw it into a theater and do a, a quick, you know, theatrical version Atmos. This year, no, let's do Atmos. Um, but we also had an iPad sort of on the stage as well. And so you're constantly checking back and forth. Uh, Netflix is really gracious to give us a secret login and they can post a work in progress and we'll like have a secret code to log oh, in. So you can actually, I can actually listen to it through at the home. Netflix streaming to it at engine. Home. Yeah. yeah, which is a big thing. I always, and, and you know, almost any streaming thing that I do, I sort of ask for that. And, you know, some are like, what? You know, but Netflix is really, you know, like Hulu was like, what? But, um, but Netflix was like, oh, yeah, of course, no problem. And Scott is really great, you know, and Ozzy's over there now, too. So they, and they really care about sound. They really, they want it to sound as, as, as great as it can be, you know. And um, so we would check it. You just check it on your sound bar, your phone, your big system, little system. Go back and make a few tweaks. Yeah. It's a window, right? Like, we, for years, theatrically, we didn't really have a speed limit. You know, like we could do whatever we wanted to sonically and not really worry about as long as you weren't like, you know, you could be plus what, plus 20 odd, whatever, no big deal. But now there's that window. So there's a whole creative side of it that you have to think about. And mostly it comes down to the dialogue. If you have a dialogue mixer that gets it right where it needs to be, then all the music and effects, and that's why Stranger Things sort of jumps out of the speakers. It's like this whole formula that Mark and I and Will came up with to sort of make sure it's like... Um, 
Bob Rock when he did the, the Metallica record. And it was a very famous thing in one of the documentaries. And he's talking about like, and now I got to figure out how to make all this sound fit through this. And he points through a little NS, Yamaha NS10. I look at that analogy of like, how do we make it sound so big in my room at home? You know, big speaker, subwoofer, blah, blah, blah. And how are you going to get it to fit? That's the challenge I think sound designers and mixers have nowadays versus theatrical only. Yeah. Well, let's thank Craig. He uh, came well, out from Los guys. Angeles I'm yesterday. He's flying back tonight. He's a busy working man. Thanks thank for you. coming to talk thank to you, us Glenn. about Thank you, Glenn. Thank you very much. Thanks, everybody, for showing up. Appreciate it. Many thanks to my friend Craig Hennigan, who traveled all the way to Austin, Texas, to South by Southwest to talk to us about Pi. Until next time, thanks for joining us. This is the Dolby Institute podcast. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Our producer and editor is Michael Coleman. Our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry, with additional editing by Matt Nixon. And our production coordinator is Sonny Chen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>